Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always by by Jason. I'm watching him. I'm looking at him through my phone because we're FaceTiming right now. And Jason, you have, as I was talking, you had this look on your face like, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? <laughs> no. no. It wasn't even about the future. It was about the past. Oh, the past. It was the way in which you said Hatton. Hatton. Like those were two very overly pronounced T's. Hatton. Well, be- because I-, I think the last time I tried to do the intro, I, you know, I fell into the typical Connecticutian accent, which is Hatton. Mm-hmm. Hatton. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and so I just wanted to you know I'm taking I'm taking a card from Matthew Reese's hand, oh, Emmy award winning actor Matthew Reese, <laughs> good friend of the pod. We were he mentioned the word because um, we were asking him you know is it easy to do an American accent? Is it difficult to do an American accent? <laughs> and somehow he mentioned the word butter. And he said, mm-hmm. he said, you know, use an American accent, you say butter. But then he said, that word has two T's. I shall like to use one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That, that was the word I remember being chastised for the most growing up was because in, in Southwest Scotland, it's easy to say bar. Oh, bar. 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 And milk. Milk and bar. Milk? Milk and butter. Milk and butter. And I would, God, I would drive my mom to distraction. Absolute distraction. Did she not grow if, up in the southwest of Scotland? Where did she grow up? She did. She just hated the way people around her spoke. Oh, okay. Her position was yeah. if you enunciated clearly and spoke slowly, you could go anywhere in this world hmm. and people would understand you. But if you stuck to the habits of your locale, it would be much more difficult. Mm, she's so, not wrong. Yeah. So I would I would forever be chastised on milk bar. And uh, and to, to which point when I you know, you travel around <laughs> Scotland with me enough, right? There's not everybody thinks Jason's from Scotland. So No, most people think you're from Ireland, which I know you love. Yeah, you know, water off a duck's back. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's more, you know, now I've got the transatlantic accent. Obviously not leaving the country these days. I'm mm. just going to fall deeper and deeper into whatever the hell it is I say in Virginia. But uh, that first <laughs> trip back back to the homeland will be a good one. Uh-huh. I'll be hootsmoning it up. Did you, you've been in Virginia for six years now? Uh, eight, correct. Has it been eight already? It has been eight, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you've been in Virginia for eight years. That's why I asked you the other day, like, how long have you been in your quote-unquote new house? Like, right, yeah, which is five <laughs> years. Yeah, come July 1, that was five years in our new there house. There you go, right? There you go. <laughs> but... Uh, the, so the question that I have, you know, you've been in the U.S. for 19 years, right? Uh, yeah, it'll be 19 in December. 19 in December, right. So you started off in Colorado. Good, uh, yep. You yep. got your starter for 10. Uh-huh. 
And then you moved up to the PNW, up to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, where I moved is the inland Northwest, but yes. Oh, that was up in the Palouse. In the Palouse? Oh, Palouse, not Palouse. Okay, okay. The way you said it, right? The way you said it rhymed with blues. And so. (laughs) I think it should rhyme with blouse, but I'm just making this up now. So don't take me as your your expert. Okay, I'm curious where this is going. Continue. So you go to Colorado, you go up to the Palouse. (laughs) Then then you went up to the town of Olala, which is on the Puget Sound. Oh, beautiful. I'd love to move back to Alala. Yep. And then from the Puget Sound, you moved to the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, which is, is this the longest? What's remarkable about this is you have, you've just got all of my banking security questions correct. So congratulations, (laughs) you're in my account. (laughs) That's me buying a blow-up doll. Um, (laughs) If you need house numbers to go with street addresses, more than happy to. First dog's name, Bob. There you go, Uh work with that. Did you get a social security number when you moved here? (laughs) Just curious, I mean... Do you need the number, last four digits? <laughs> I'll take all the yeah. uh, nine of them. <laughs> I had to think yeah, I got a social security number in summer of 1994 uh-huh. when I uh, spent three months working at my, my cousin's Schlotzky's deli in Dallas. In Dallas, yes. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, okay. So yeah. Either 94 or 95. <laughs> I think that was 95. 94, it was just totally... Under the counter, but I think 95, I got a social security card. The, the point I'm slowly trying to get to here is, so you've been in Virginia the longest out of all of them, yes? No. No? Because No, because we were on the Palouse from 2002 until 2011. Nine years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We just spent two years in Colfax before we then spent seven years in Pullman. Pullman, that's right. Okay. The, 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 whole, the whole reason for this line of questioning. I'm loving it. I'm having a blast. <laughs> Have you picked up any Virginia-isms? Like, do, has, you know, because your, your accent has devolved, degraded over the mm-hmm, years. Mm-hmm. Like, what, mm-hmm. what from where you are now have you bolted on to your, is it an accent? Is it a, a phraseology? Like, what is it? So... I'm glad you asked this question. I was just thinking about this the other day. And and here's what's quite peculiar. Mm. We've been in Virginia for these eight years. Mm. We have virtually no Virginia friends. And that's not to say we don't have any local friends. It's to make the point that when you move into an academic community, you end up befriending people who are also of the nomadic lifestyle, who have uh, also moved here from somewhere else. Sure. And so you don't necessarily pick up the vagaries of the local dialect. You instead either, you know, pick up the vagaries of what somebody else has brought here, mm. or to my mind, you don't really pick up anything. You just hold dear to what it is you bring to the equation sure um and so yeah we've got we've got local friends who are from pennsylvania who are from maine uh, who are from new hampshire who are from the pacific northwest Mm -hmm. um 
yeah, we, and it's it's very rare the people we know from Virginia, and those people we do know from Virginia went somewhere else to get their schooling to then <laughs> return to Virginia. And so they're not necessarily, you know, holding fast to patterns of dialect that are, you know, you know, many decades old. Mm. And so I, I'm, I'm sure we, I'm sure we're all picking up something from, from each other, but it's, to my mind, it's not discernible as something from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's uh, just... Because I'll, uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest, my wife, I think, says more Pennsylvanian things okay. than she does any other region. And she hasn't lived in Pennsylvania in the better part of two decades. But she'll say things like mirror. Mirror? When she means, when she means mirror. Right? Mirror? M-I-R-R-O-R. Mirror. Uh, does she say drawer as well? Maybe. Or draw. Some people say draw instead I, of I've drawer. I've stopped listening by that point. Like drop your drawers? No, no, no. Like you, I've stopped you, listening at that point. Yeah. I just don't know what I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> no. If you, you go, go to your dresser and you open up mm. a drawer. drawer. I would say drawer. Yeah, she, probably, she probably does... The draw. Shrink it draw. quite quite considerably. Yeah. She says hat instead of hot. And so, you know, no, when no, she no, comes no. out, ah, it's, it's hot outside. And I'm like, No, you put the oh, hats you on hot? your head. It's hot outside see, and hats go see, on. That's heads. what I tell her, but that, that doesn't go over very well either. So okay. yeah, it's tough. And then of course when I correct her, because you know, I'm the asshole, uh, then she'll say, Oh, sorry, I meant to say hot. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's interesting to me that she does. She carries some of that Pennsylvania from growing up mm. than she does from the rest of the the speak. And then I listen to my two boys; they're starting to sound a lot more Virginian to, to I, my ear. I remember you saying that that Kai, Nakai Zevi says something very Virginia-like. He has wire, wire. He always thinks, makes me think of Penelope Pitstop from Wacky Races. A wire. Gosh, <laughs> even I don't get that reference. Uh, do you remember Dastardly and Muttley? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Penelope, so they're also from the Wacky Races. They just had uh, a, a split off show of their own. Okay. And, but, and then Penelope Pitstop. Oh, okay. I, I, thought I think you... Penelope Pitstop actually had a, a break-off show of herself. But yeah, they were all Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Got it. I thought you were pulling out another Aunt Sally that, you know, few people would get. <laughs> but those that do get it are, are just pleased as punch that you've, you've mentioned it. Uh, speaking of punch, oh, that's the number one way rum was consumed in the United States in the 18th century. Look at you dropping knowledge. Where did you get such knowledge to be dropped? So you and I have, have made mention mm -hmm. of of looking into more rums for the nation. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. We've, we've had success with rum at retail. Uh, we just launched our first rum, uh, two members of the nation, mm -hmm. and, and it sold very, very well. Uh, took, what, three, four days to sell out. And... And so we're we're looking deeper into the rum category. That we are. And and so given we've got you know our dear friend Dave Broom, who has been it's so funny, right? 
we've been talking about Dave Broom championing rum since, in my mind, the number is 2003. Yeah. I just read in Rum the Manual, written by Dave Broom, mm-hmm. um, I want to say some point in the last two to five years. I'll have to double check that to be 100% certain. Mm-hmm. 1993 was the beginning of him saying, Rum is coming. Rum is coming. Everybody get ready. Rum is coming. 1993, 27 years ago, he said rum is coming. Exactly. Exactly. 1993. I tell you, he would have made a terrible Paul Revere. That's like like if Paul Revere were to cry wolf. I feel as if 1993 (laughs) is crying wolf for rum, but it feels as if it is coming here finally. But, But here's the other part for me is... At what point do we say Dave Broom was not correct, right? <laughs> because, because to my mind, if you say it every three to five years for 30 years, yeah. I think there comes a point when we say even a broken clock is right twice a day. But also, what does rum is coming mean? I mean, rum has been here for a long time and and quite, you know, used quite largely in, you know, with cocktails. Like, it's a big mover. There's well rums and all sorts. Of, like, what does that mean, rum is coming? So here's the thing. If you look at the history of rum in the United States over the last 200 to 250 years, mm-hmm. it has, just like my knowledge of the whiskey industry, it has had a series of peaks and troughs and sure. it has been in favor and it has been out of favor. And so the return to tiki, um, which I think is being a very, you know, you know, I, I, I saw the rise of tiki you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. Tiki first came to this country in the 1930s, mm-hmm. right? Hot off the heels of prohibition, hot off the heels of Cuba, uh, and Cuban rum being discovered by those who left the U.S. Sure. You know, prohibition and went down to Cuba and had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, tiki kind of came back with them, mm-hmm. and so, so right now to say rum is coming, rum was here. It kind of went away a bit, and then it came back in one form. To, for me. And I, I could be completely mistaken in, in thinking of it like this. For me, I'm looking at it where we talk about how omnipresent vodka was in the 80s and brown spirits were trying to battle against that. You had the creation of light whiskey, which American mm-hmm. grain whiskey, which you and I have talked about many, many times. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you, you contrast that with today, where you and I talk about from about... 2006, plus or minus two years, you've got the beginning of the boom of Scotch whiskey, Mm -hmm. which then became global whiskey, which then became American craft whiskey, right? It's all whiskey all All the time. time. That's the champion. Mm -hmm. And so my take has been, given that all of that is cyclical, when will rum get its return to that extent and and that's a thing that's that I don't think we're close to 
But as you and I upturn more and more stones and you and I speak to more and more people who are as deep into rum as you and I are into whiskey, mm. whiskey writ large, both with an E and without an E, you and I are starting to hear from them. Yeah, we're seeing an increase in demand. We're seeing an increase in people wanting to talk about this yeah. and increase in people wanting to learn about this. And you and I are seeing it, and this was part of the Angostura release that we had for the nation. We're seeing bourbon drinkers who are more than happy dipping a toe into rum. Yep, makes you sense. and I are approaching yeah. single malt drinkers who are intrigued in dipping a toe into rum. Uh, you and I will have an episode coming up at some point in the future where we sit and talk to Richard Seal, fifth generation ownership at Foursquare. And Richard talks to us in that interview and talks to our listeners in that interview mm -hmm. the way he talks to a whiskey audience. Yeah. So there's there's natural progression there, natural evolution there. And I think this boom that we've been a part of in whiskey, I think will incorporate rum and the rum world. And I think those who have been in rum and digging it, loving it, exploring it, like Mitch, who we'll talk to today, you know, since 93 and 2003 and 2013, mm. I think those folk are going to be excited to have that new audience walking through their door saying, yeah. tell me more. Tell me what you know about this. Uh, and I, I think that's I think that's very exciting. Um, and so before I get too far away from kind of the answer I was giving you there, do you think it's a mistake for me to think about rum being where Scotch has been for the last 14, 15, 16 years? Do you think it's a mistake to expect rum to get where vodka was in the 80s? Uh, do you yourself think there's a different way to measure rum arriving, not just rum coming, but rum arriving? I do believe that there's going to be a different way to measure it because if you think about the Scotch whiskey boom, that was a focus on single malt and and so much so that it was at one time that 95% of the Scotch whiskey industry was all blends, 5% was was single malt. And now it's more of a 90-10 split, right? So mm -hmm. single malt has grown by leaps and bounds. And, and then that, I feel, extended, at least here in the U.S., to bourbon, right? Where bourbon was kind of the rot gut. Maybe you'd go into a mix like a Manhattan or an Old Fashioned or, you know, something like that. But then all of a sudden people started drinking it straight like they would single malt, Mm -hmm. And and I think with rum, because it is such an amazingly broad category that comes from dozens of countries, and you've got unaged rums and spiced rums and, and, and all this stuff, like, will those that drink single malt and bourbon convert to rum? Like, to me, rum arriving in the sense that Scotch whiskey or bourbon has arrived, means that there's going to be more access to unadulterated rums that people are going to want to drink straight. 
And I don't know if it's going to get there. You know, a lot of people thought that Irish whiskey was was going to boom, and it is booming. There's more distilleries yeah. being built. But the growth within Irish whiskey continues to be within blends and not necessarily within the pure malt. I'm sorry, the, the pot still in the single malt categories. And when that really kicks off, that's when, at least in my mind, I will say Irish whiskey is arrived. And when that happens with rum, when people just want to drink it for what it is rather than mix it with something else, then, it, again, at least in my mind, that's when I'll say, okay, rum has arrived. And maybe yeah. I'm thinking about it the wrong way. Yeah, maybe we both are. Maybe we both aren't. Maybe one of us will be proven right and one of us will be proven wrong. It's, it's right now, it's, it's that speculation surrounding yeah. it, right? And, and that, that is kind of fun for me. Um, I, I just want to throw this in. We have a, a very knowledgeable audience who we thoroughly enjoy. If you, like, like me, like Joshua, if, if you want to know more about the rum category... I would recommend jumping in where where I've just jumped in. I picked up Dave Broom's Rum the Manual just on my Kindle and it's 3.99. Like if you just want a nice easy dip your toe in, get a sense of the industry, get a sense of the different styles of production, get a sense of the different regions, you know, clearly it scratches the surface, hmm. but it really does it in a way that I feel like I'm starting to equip myself. And if there's a part Dave doesn't cover in more detail, I know to go find another resource that'll mm. be the deep dive into yeah, that. Yeah, and good. so if, if you just want to scratch the surface and just get a, a base understanding of the category, I do recommend uh, Rum the Manual by our friend Dave Broom. Before we jump over to Mitch, because I, I, I don't want you and I to sit and wax lyrical about Rum more than we have, because Mitch is a fascinating interview here. <laughs> but just just another thing that I've got rumbling around in my brain, Ooh, just as oh. we talk about... Rum- rumbling? <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble! <laughs> Too easy. Jeez, um, um, what was I going to say? Um, now my brain's gone empty. Rum had such a global presence mm-hmm. and was consumed so readily before whiskey was even a category. Right. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And, and so the, the thought that this drink that you and I champion, that is, you know, from my homeland, wasn't even on a menu when brandy and... Cognac and wine and rum were were the options of the day. Mm -hmm. Just, just rumbles around in my brain (laughs) and just has me thinking, wow, we're the the new kid on the block going up to people saying like, hey, hey, you ever heard of this? What's it called? Rum? You ever ever heard of this? (laughs) Here. You want so you want to try it? <laughs> like, oh my God, the audaciousness, the audacity of us um, is terrific. So there you go. That's that's rumbling around in my brain. 
Um, let's, let's jump into it with Mitch because I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with him. Yeah, and, and like you had said with Dave Broom and, and, and his book, you know, Rum, the Manual, giving you a great primer on rum, I think Mitch does an amazing job as well and gives, gives us a good bit of history, not just on the, the, the overall category of rum, but he represents a brand called Black Tot. And, and just, you know, full disclosure, full disclaimer here, Black Tot is a brand that Impex Beverages imports. I am an employee of Impex Beverages. So I just want everybody to know that we will be discussing Black Tot. This is not an infomercial for Black Tot, but rather, yeah. you know, the, the idea was to have a rum conversation. Now, let's get a little bit of 101 in here. Let's get a little bit of history, but we also need to know about Black Tot as well because it's an integral part of the rum history. Yeah, and, and just to kind of underline, you and I are always very careful to not fall into infomercial territory. Here's how terrible a job you did if this were to be an infomercial. My good friend and business partner did not send me a sample of Black Tot rum to enjoy during the interview with Mitch, when we would ultimately start talking about black tot rum. So I was on the outside. I'm, I'm just like our dear listeners uh, in listening to this interview. I also didn't have any black tot rum to enjoy. Wow. And, um, and that's just the way it is. Without further ado, here's Mitch and Joshua. And ultimately, they'll be drinking black tot rum together. So first off, Mitch, thank you for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. As you know, One Nation Under Whiskey is, it's a podcast that obviously, as the name tells you, focuses on whiskey. And so to talk about rum, it's, we're kind of taking a detour from what we normally do. However, as independent bottlers, we've to date, you know, bottled, what, four, four or five rums, five rums right now. And what we found as, as we bottle more and more rum, many of our Scotch whiskey drinkers are, are starting to follow along, right? They're curious about dipping a toe into rum. I think bourbon drinkers have, have found perhaps an easier path to rum and maybe Foursquare has been a bit of a gateway to them. There's so many you know, similarities and flavor profiles from Foursquare rum to bourbon, you know, certain keynotes that bourbon lovers look for. But I think there's a, a good number of people out there, whiskey drinkers, that are nervous to dip a toe into the world of rum. You know, I was, I was part of a, a, a Zoom tasting last week, and, you know, we were focusing on Japanese whiskey, and we started talking about rum, and I brought out a bottle of Black Tot, and I'm drinking that. And the guy we were speaking with says, I, I just don't know where to go with rum, because everyone I've had has been way too sweet. Someone told me that, you know, it may say 15 years old, but maybe it isn't 15 years old. And I don't like, you know, Captain Morgan. Like, I don't want my, I don't want it spiced. <laughs> and so it's difficult to point a whiskey drinker in the direction you think a whiskey drinker would want to go to, right? To a dry rum, to something that mm. doesn't have sugar into it. And then, and this is, it's a bit of a long setup here. 
And then the other aspect of rum is that, you know, at least here in the U.S., it has been uh, white rum that's made for cocktails and, and really nothing else. And then on your journey to the serious side of rum, which I think might be where whiskey lovers want to go, that's where they want their destination to be, there's tiki along the way, which is almost like, you know, a bit more geeky rum, but it's silly and kind of fun. And then there's this weird tiki culture, which can be kind of unusual and confusing to people. And so with all that said, you know, how do you, when you're, when you're talking to people within the whiskey world, how do you talk to them? How do you tell them that, you know what, the rum world is okay to visit and here's why? Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on, Josh and Jason. It's uh, great to be at the first ever One Nation Under Rum. Uh, I think the name change <laughs> is great. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, I'm glad I'm glad you've seen the light finally. Um, no, it's... <laughs> I think I, I always think back to uh, the first ever... Uh, the first ever shift I did at a bar, and I was I was very lucky. It was a rum bar in London called Trailer Happiness, and um, I'd been trying to trying to get a job there. And and one day they said, "Okay, come in tomorrow. We're doing a stock take. Uh, we can you can come in for a couple of hours and help me with that." Mm. And on the on the back wall of Trailer, you've got about three hundred rums, and he was calling out each rum and and giving me the figures of how much rum was left in the bottle, and I was writing it all down. And you know, most of all, almost all of those rums at that time I'd never heard of before. Half of them I'd never seen before or since. And you know, half you know half the places they were from I'd I'd never come across mm. before. You know, it was a, it was. I, I think it's I think it could be so hard when you first start off because. Um, you know, it, it is. It's a. It's a completely foreign world. It's completely for, foreign land, and you're you're trying to get your head around all of these places, and um, and it's very very tough to know where to start. And and so anyone anyone who's sort of as you say dipping their toe into the rum world, I completely empathise with that because I remember exactly how that felt. And hmm. it's it's almost like um, the only experience in my life I could relate it to outside of spirits is. Uh, when I first started listening to Bob Dylan albums and my friends, <laughs> my friends like, you've got to listen to this Bob Dylan. It's amazing. I'm like, cool. And, you know, he plays Blonde on Blonde. I'm like, this is amazing. And then, you know, yeah. then he puts on Freewheeling. I'm like, oh, this is really cool too, but it's completely different. And then, you know, and then I'm, I'm going through all of Bob Dylan's albums being like, oh, just, they must all be amazing. And then there's like this Christian rock and there's all these random ones. And I'm like... <laughs> how the hell is this all the same person? How the, how is this all the same? Like there's like 70 albums on here. Like, how do I know what to listen to first? How did like, and then you go like blood up, blood on the tracks. You're like, Oh, if I can like, I like that one. But how did, right. And then you find another and it's, and it's like this mountain where if you don't have a guide sort of show you which path to go up, you can, you, you might try a hundred rums, which are awful before you find one that you love. And, and it's, it's mm. very, very tough when you're getting in because, you know, unlike, I think, the whiskey world, which has done such a wonderful job of, of educating people, you know, even, even people who know nothing about whiskey, you know, I'd say, oh, 
well, do you want to try a Scotch or an Irish whiskey or an American whiskey? And they'll have a basic understanding. They'll go, oh, yeah, I think, I, I think I'm going to like Scotch. I think I'm going to like this, whatever. You know, like real basic yeah. stuff. In the rum world, if I said, what do you think you prefer, Barbados or Jamaican rum? Uh, yeah. No idea. I know. Well, um, it's all the Caribbean, isn't it? It's like it, it, <laughs> it doesn't have that same uh, un- basic understanding for people from the offset. We've got to build that up and we have to do a better job, I think, in the rum world of, of, of guiding people, of helping people through those first few hurdles. Because otherwise, yeah, you pick up the wrong rum and you go, oh, th- this has got a pirate on it. It must be authentic, you know. And <laughs> Uh, now we've lost you. <laughs> so that was going to be the, the question I wanted to put in front of you is even within the Scotch world or the single malt world, we understand the regions to be very general, not particularly accurate, but it's it's still a shorthand that a lot of us still return to just to paint Scotch with broad strokes you know, Highland, Lowland, Isla, mm. world, where we now say, you know, Irish, English, Welsh, Indian. Are there even broad strokes within rum? Or are you still looking at, even if you're looking at Jamaica, even if you're looking at Barbados, there'll be one style of rum at this distillery, another style of rum at that distillery? Or, mm. or is there some kind of regionality to this, no matter how broad? There, there is there. There are some regionalities which, um, w- which, at least get you in the right ballpark. They at least get you in the right field. And I mean, you've got to you've got to remember. And, and for some people listening as well, um, you may have heard rum described as white, gold, and dark. I mean, yeah. what yeah. a shit way to describe spirits, right? Okay, <laughs> maybe, like if. If that's where you're starting in your rum journey as white, gold, and dark, that would it would be the same as saying oh, I I drink brown whiskey. You know what? Mm. What the <laughs> yeah. hell does that mean? Yeah. You know, like we're we're not we're not. It's not like rum is like oh we're a little bit behind in there. Our understanding is like no 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 we <laughs> we we are really really behind with some of the the terminology and some of the things we do. And then you know after white, gold, and dark, the the next thing people tend to learn is English, Spanish, French, as in you know sort of a basic understanding of of what those. Uh, islands are attached to colonial wise and you know what their original Mm. languages were and that sort of tends to you know we thought oh that kind of gives you a picture english style would be bigger heavier pot still styles french style would be grassy agricoles you know spanish style would be solera and column still and that's like yeah sometimes but again it's that would be the equivalent of saying what kind of whiskey do you like i like european whiskey Okay, mm. you know, again, we're just, we're, it's too broad a term. And then by the time we get down to individual islands and countries, that's where, okay, we can, yes, there, there may very well be differences between distilleries, they, they usually are. Um, but generally, there'll be some, there'll be more in common than not in common. You know, there's at least a general idea that this island will make this style and within that island those four distilleries will do this 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 and this you know um some countries some islands only have one one distillery so that you know that really narrows it down but that distillery itself might make you know 20 different 
styles of rum within that one distillery as well mm-hmm. so oh, so wow. e- even then it, it gets tricky and we have to you know again like anything you've got to get more and more specific the more you understand the more you learn about it the more we can narrow down that conversation and be able to say exactly what you want um but yeah the rum, the rum world for, for years was not very good at that and i think hopefully we're starting to get a bit better so <laughs> Yeah, you know, again, it just just trying to lay lay down the groundwork for our, for our listeners, you know, but putting, trying to fit the idea of rum within a whiskey mindset. Uh, when we when we think about Scotch whiskey, or American whiskey, uh, or you know, or even European whiskeys, there are certain guidelines put into place, right? Scotch Whiskey mm-hmm. Association has certain laws that say this is what a scotch is, this is what blended scotch is, this is what single malt scotch is. And then there's bourbon, right? How, how much corn is in the mash bill? You're using new charred oak, you know, so on and so forth. But again, we're, we're, we're putting these in the context of, of the regions where these are meant to be made, right? Scotch can mm-hmm. only be made in Scotland, and therefore they can control what that production looks like. Bourbon can only be made in America. Again, they can control it. But when it comes to rum, it's made all around the world. Mm -hmm. And my understanding, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, Mitch, but my understanding is there is no unifying laws around rum because it's very difficult to unify 20, 30, 40, you know, however many countries are are making rum is there, is, are there laws that, that I'm not thinking of, A, and B, are there any big players within the rum industry that are trying to put at least baseline rules in place to say, okay, this is what you can and cannot call rum? Hmm. Um, so... I guess my, my first my first thing on that would be as as you say yes there are lots of different rules for whiskey but if I you know if I was to say to you guys is there one rule for whiskey that everyone has to, to follow like well, well no it's it's all regional you know yes scotch has its rules bourbon has its rules each of these regions will have very clear guidelines and mm. rum yes again you know just there are a lot of countries that make rum. There are a lot of islands that make rum. But like, it would be interesting to see side by side, like, you know, nowadays how many regions are making whiskey and and all the local regulations for each of those as well, and see, mm-hmm. you know, what what those numbers actually stack up by. Because you know, I I have trouble keeping up with you guys in the whiskey world. You know, it's like okay, well, <laughs> what's going on now? Right, okay, yeah, um, yeah. so. So yes, there there are local rules, and and some of them are more enforced and more enforceable than others. And this is where it this is where it starts to get tricky because you can have you can have local traditions and customs, right? You can have a this is how we've always made it, so this is just what we do, and we don't need a a, a GI or an AOC or a uh, whatever denomination to sort of say, okay, this is in writing because this is just how we do it. Um, 
that said, there are there are some some places in the rum world that absolutely do. So Martinique is is probably the most famous example. Uh, they have a an AOC, an Appellation d'Origine Controlé. Uh, apologies to any French listeners, but um, that's their um, that's that's their their rule list. You know, you can ferment to this ABV. You can ferment for this many hours. You can have this bricks content in your in your wash. You can only distill using column stills. You can only distill to these ABVs. Like they're super super specific, just as the French are with everything they make. You know, cognac, champagne. They're they the French mm. are amazing at putting rules in place. Um, but then you've also got you know Venice, Venezuela has has um, its own appellation as well. So you can only use. Uh, locally harvested sugarcane uh, molasses. You have a two-year minimum age limit on all the rum. Like they have a lot of rules there too. Uh, oh, okay. Cuba, Cuba has a two-year minimum age limit. Puerto Rico has a one-year minimum age limit. I'm I'm throwing out age limits there, which is actually more uncommon in rum. Um, but there are there are lots of local rules and lots of, as I say, some more codified than others. Um, mm. Now, the, the tricky part is you can have all the rules you like in the world, but then you need the rest of the world to obey those rules, you know? So, sure. you know, you hear those old stories about when, when cognac was protecting the name cognac, so you couldn't call it Hungarian cognac or Russian cognac. or It's like, no, 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 cognac is just this region, just this place. That's If it's not sure. from here... It's, it doesn't qualify and 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 the rum world's had had difficulties with that in the past you know so like terms like agricole are protected in the EU for example uh, but as far as I know unless something's changed recently it wasn't protected in America so someone else could you know release yeah. an agricole not from Martinique or those surrounding islands there mm. um, and dep- depending on which countries enforce the rules and which countries don't that that kind of weakens your trademark on that term. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of different legislation to get through with that, and it's not always it's not always down to the rum producers themselves. Um, quite often, it's down to the trade, the commerce, the relationships between those countries, and what can and can't reasonably be enforced. Um, but in answer to the second part of your question, yes, absolutely, there is there is more of a movement in the rum world towards. Uh, creating these GIs, these appellations. So, um, you know, for years there's been talks about creating this uh, or rather enforcing this, like, authentic Caribbean rum mark. Um, there, mm. are, there are people trying to enforce, you know, more local regulations, so, like, making sure that the, the GI for Jamaica is a set, set clear list of rules. Uh, Barbados is the other f- famous example. There's a big, big tussle going on in Barbados over what the, the GI is going to be and how that's going to... <laughs> eventuate you know whether whether you can add sugar to rum or not add sugar to rum is and all of these other things so yeah people and producers are realizing the importance in having these gis in place and i think for the most part everyone wants them uh, but not mm. everyone of course has the same ideas of what they want them to be and i'm sure you still want to preserve that regionality while having rules regulations writ large in place it's how do you find the wiggle room within that? And when someone comes out to say, we're going to write down regulations, it sounds terrible from the very beginning mm. and you don't get a lot of buy-in. So I could see the struggle uh, in trying to implement such a thing. Um, 
question for you, since you're here, Mitch. If, if we're looking at flavor profiles, I, I had a wonderful experience where uh, Christopher Grombeck, who runs and operates The Barrel Thief in Seattle, we talk about him a fair bit, we've interviewed him for the podcast. There was a, a night after a whiskey tasting where he and I were just talking about rum a little bit. Mm. He said, okay, let me do this for you. He pulls out five glasses, he puts five different rums in them, and we run the gamut from tire fire, nail polish, warm and chewy, a uh, little bit spicy, a lot of tropical, as I go from glass to glass to glass. How do you articulate those styles to people? And, and what styles do you encounter as you explore this, this rum world? Well, that's a that's a tricky question. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 very tough. There there have been lots of different, um, I guess, sort of attempts at official categorizations of things. But in terms of the flavor profiles that you mention, it's um, yeah, it it is tricky. Um, one uh, we we're, we're very close with the the whiskey exchange over here in the UK and. Um, they're, they've sort of come up with a, a system on their website to, um, to help people with that kind of thing because it is, it is very hard to break it down and you're like, well, what, what, you know, what do I like? What's my, what's my favourite thing? Um, so they've got, you know, different, lots of different terms. I'm going to be tested now because um, Dawn Davies, who came up with it all, is going to be... <laughs> <laughs> listening to this and be like make sure you got those flavor camps right um so here we are I'll, I'll read out the six for you that they've got here so you've got uh, light and uncomplicated which for me is the most passive aggressive of all the six flavor camps it's um, basically the rums that taste like vodka and don't taste of anything uh, oh, light and uncomplicated that's brilliant <laughs> wow Med- I had a girlfriend like that once it's <laughs> That, that's exactly why I said to Dawn, I was like, imagine going on a date with someone and, you know, like, how are they? Oh, they're light and uncomplicated. Like, oh, that's not a good... You shouldn't describe anything like that. But anyway, light and uncomplicated. The, the vodka's... Where are they because... making light and uncomplicated whiskeys? Uh, light and uncomplicated rums. <laughs> You'll have to answer the whiskey question afterwards. But <laughs> Yeah, Lowlands is an easy answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Yeah, unfortunately, I'm I'm reticent to sort of attach it to certain places because makes the, sense. The, the, anno- the annoying thing is, is that you know a distillery can make any like if if you've got a still, as you guys know, you can you can make amazing spirit or you can make very cheap spirit. It really depends on the brand and what they're looking to put out. Um, and I don't feel it always represents or. or gives the best image to a certain island or, or, or country but you know you get you get these places with you know multi-column stills that can make uh, a rum distillate up to you know 96 percent and you know when you're distilling to that that kind of level you're you're not really you're not bringing through any of the congeners you're not bringing through any of the flavor and it is pretty close to to vodka you know and they'll Mm -hmm. water it down and they might add color to it and spices to it and that that might be the base for a spice drum or something like that but you know as soon as soon as you're distilling that high and it's and it's that mass produced you know you might as well 
you could use pretty much anything for the for the bass, you know. So, sure. um, gotcha. Yep. So yep. it sounds like Scottish grain whiskey, American grain whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, if if you ever if you ever try rum and and again, not to not that the term's great, but a lot of people will try a, a white rum. Um, and they'll go, oh, this has got no flavour to it, you know, and it, it really depends what white rum you're having. If you're having uh, a rum that's been aged, filtered, whatever, and just sort of stripped down to its lowest ABV, then, then yeah, it might not have that much flavour to it. But then if you're trying a, a, a white rum like Rare Nephew, which is unaged, overproof, 63% from Jamaica, pot and column blend, you know you're having a party you know oh, it's, it's a, a completely different experience so, <laughs> so which is again where this whole idea of color breaks it down you know it breaks down completely you can't you can't use that you have to be specific what is this is this a multi-column still charcoal filtered 96 percent distillate watered down to fuck then well yeah okay that's going <laughs> to taste like vodka of course um yeah so light, light and uncomplicated rums. There's there's a few out there, but if you if if you've ever had a boring rum, that would be the category for that one. <laughs> um, herbaceous and grassy, as I say, the Agricoles, Clarence from Haiti, beautiful grassy, tastes like sugarcane, fermented and distilled. Um, tropical and fruity is another uh, another category they have on here. So this is like your. Um, I always think of this as like your your Barbados rums, your uh, J- some of your Jamaican rums. You know, you get uh, Barbados for me is like the pina colada of rums. It's it's pineapples, coconuts, mm. vanilla. You know, mm-hmm. you get all those. If mm-hmm. if you're picturing yourself drinking a rum and lying on a beach somewhere with your coconut, you're probably drinking Barbados rum. You know, it's beautiful. Um, Jamaica is. Jamaica is a lot more intense. It's 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 still those fruit flavors, but it tends to be a bit more ripe, a bit more pungent, a bit more, um, yeah, a bit more forward. So so the uh, Jamaican fruity, still tropical, still, but just sort of on the other end of the spectrum of that that category, you know. Okay. Then you they have another one for fruity and spicy. So this is where. Um, you know, you do, and, and not as in spiced rum, but just you can, uh, again, I think of Jamaican rums doing this very well, you get some of those uh, spicier notes coming through, those, you know, that cinnamon, that uh, that all-spice kind of flavour starting to come through in the rum. Dry and spicy is another category they use, and then rich and treacly, again, for your bigger, sweeter richer rums as well so so that's that's how they break it down that that and that i think helps people get at least in the right ballpark to start with mm-hmm. um yeah so that's yeah and, right and that's that's what strikes me about it and i think that was the success of of the regionality with whiskey is mm. it didn't need to be a hundred percent correct all of the time it just needed to be a starting point that would give those who were interested in exploring whiskey, a common language. And so even though, you know, you point out here, these terms are are general, (laughs) it's not always going to fit every distillery within every region, Mm. but it's a starting point. And and it allows me to sit down of an evening and say, okay, I'm going to go through five or six rums and I'm going to explore these flavor profiles. Now I feel equipped 
to jump off and conduct my own research mm. and look into production or now speak to another rum drinker and say, oh, hey, I had this, you know, light and inconsequential. I'm, I'm riffing off the, the, yes. uh, the first profile. <laughs> um, but, but, but what a beginning, like what a story to begin telling. And so I, I, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad there is a jumping off point, even if it's not ideal. So. I want to switch gears here a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. I do. I do want to return, however, to flavor in a little bit. But mm-hmm. you know, one of the other reasons that that we we're desperate to have you on the podcast is you. You're such a great storyteller. You know, I'm sure you've got many stories to tell, but specifically to the to the history of of black top rum. Right, which, which is the yes. brand that you're with, and you know, here in the U.S., we will have, if if anybody's perused their various liquor shops and maybe looked in the glass cabinet, they will have seen you know black tie last last consignment for well over a thousand dollars, and w- wondering how could a rum be well over a thousand dollars? None of this makes sense. What is a top anyway, and why is said top black? You know, it just <laughs> we didn't really fully understand it, but but it's it's been your job for a while now to to teach people the history of of Black Tot, what Black Tot Day is, and and now you're part of the team that's sort of reintroduced this brand of of Black Tot, and and it's it's launching globally. So I wonder if you can talk a bit about your brand and the and the history of it. Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned the glass cabinet, actually. Someone sent me a, a link the other day. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched Trailer Park Boys. It's a show on Netflix. And season, uh, season two, episode 10, the last one in the season, they go to this bottle store and they get this bottle of black tot out of glass cabinet. And it's like... Wow. <laughs> we were we were completely shocked. We were like, wow, okay. So we need to, uh, if they're listening, we need to send you... A, send you some rum to say thank you but um, <laughs> wow that's fantastic <laughs> we're, uh, we're we're like oh we feel <laughs> we feel a lot of love but yeah it's uh, you're right it's it's it is one of those rums that for years um it's had a bit of mystery around it and now we're sort of uh ramping ramping it up and and i i joined uh, the team at the start of this year to to help share that story because it is it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal backstory and it's one of the most incredible rums in the world like this uh, there really is nothing uh, out there that I found that has the the history that this rum has to it so to to take this back a bit I guess we have to go to um, back about three hundred years where um, the, <laughs> <All right>. uh, <laughs> that's a Joshua level backing it up that's pro yeah, level that's, well done that's, that's serious. <laughs> Uh, how how long how long does this podcast go? We <laughs> settle in. Uh, we've had you three hour episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so at sea, everything starts at sea with our story of Black Tart. Um, and life at sea, three hundred years ago, was was shit. Like it was horrible, and you didn't want to be on that boat. You know, with <laughs> in the conditions you were in. Um, and there were lots of different challenges that uh, that various you know navies and merchants and privateers and stuff had um, one of those challenges was how to have enough water for the voyage um, and part of the issue with that was you know the only way you could transport anything was in barrels uh, barrels yeah. were 
in this sense, purely a transportation device. No one, no one's, you know, caring about, well, let's age our whiskies and rums and stuff like that. It's like, no, the barrel, we can roll the barrel, we can store a lot of stuff in it, we can put it on the ship and it will, it will survive the, the voyage. So if you fill that barrel with water in the 1600s, one, that water's probably not clean. It's not like filtered water we have today. Um, you know, you've probably got some disease in the water already. Two, if you put it in a barrel, it's only going to last maximum of two, three weeks before you start getting algae on it and stuff oh, growing yeah. in it and all that water's gone off and stale and horrible. And what they they understood even back then was was just if if you had something alcoholic, the alcohol would keep it better for longer so rather than take you know coming from from england say rather than take uh we would still take water but you'd also take beer because we were a beer country and even a light beer with a little bit of alcohol and it would keep it you know hopefully for the duration of your of your trip and you could drink that and the daily ration for sailors every day was eight pints of beer a day that's imperial pints not u.s pints so they're like the the big ones and so that was about ounces yeah so a gallon of beer every day uh was the was the ration and that's how you stayed hydrated and you drank that and if you went on a a short voyage or or a smaller trip you'd get a lower strength beer um, and if you were going on a longer voyage, they, they were meant to give you a higher strength beer because the higher mm. strength would help keep it for longer. Um, mm. Makes sense. Now, bear in mind, depending on the size of your crew, a gallon per day per crew member, that's a lot of beer, a lot of cargo that you're carrying on ship anyway. Also, it wouldn't necessarily have tasted the best either, um, especially, you know, that beer would still go off and, and go stale at some point on the trip. So it's probably going to be pretty rank by the time you got to wherever you were going so you were constantly trying to pick up other other things along the way and wherever you could go to a port restock re refill refresh things you would yeah also you know the the officers the higher higher end uh serving at that time were still allowed to drink so they would have gin cognac brandy other other spirits whiskey at this stage is still you know we're talking about early 1600s it's it's just sort of coming onto the it's, it's, it's not, not really, really yeah. not really a thing yet you know so so whiskey at this stage doesn't really get a look a look in but around this time the 15 1600s is where we start to go to the caribbean and all the you know all the european navies are going to the caribbean and the americas and they're you know all tussling for land over there um now Getting there is one thing, and then having a spirit to bring back is another thing, you know. And each each of these navies would have different things. So the Portuguese, you know, they'd have ports. You'd have different ones of sherry. You'd have gin. You'd have cognac. And so we would try not to buy cognac wherever we could because we we were often fighting the French. So, uh, but but people <laughs> loved it so much. We we might go to like a third party, a neutral ground, and we buy them buy it off them just so we don't actually have to hand the French any money, you know. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the first the first time we ever see rum come on the map in, in, in this sense, in the Navy sense, is in 1655. Uh, so the Spanish who'd been ruling Jamaica for 100 years or so, England came along, we took Jamaica off the Spanish, and at the end, to celebrate this, it was like a month-long battle to get 
get the island from the Spanish. Um, mm. And at the end, we all had this tot of rum to to celebrate. It was like everyone everyone was issued a, a ration of rum. So 1655 is the first recording we have of this rum ration being dished out to, in the British oh, Navy. Okay. For for the next you know eighty or so years, it, it really carries on as just drink whatever you can find. Uh, various things on ships and all things on ships, you know, where beer, gin, cognac, and now rum starting to be introduced, especially for the voyages back. Mm. Then in 1731, you get the first codified set of Navy rules because before then it was really whatever you want to do, you just trusted them to do the right thing out there. <laughs> so they were like, maybe we should have a, have a set of guidelines for this. So 1731, they write the Navy rules. And as part of that, they say, you know, you can have the, the beer ration still, or you can, you can, if that's not available, you can have a half pint of overproof rum or, or any spirit, but rum, rum comes into the thing. Now, half a pint, I don't know if you've ever had Half pint of overproof rum, but that's pretty. That's a pretty fun night. And trying trying to run an entire crew that's all on a half pint of overproof rum every day, it didn't last very long. So they quickly they quickly halve that to a quarter pint. Uh, they then halved that again to an eighth of a pint, and uh, and watered it down uh, to call it what became known as grog. So this was Grog, watered yeah, down, yeah. watered down rum, basically on the ships, um, and that that tradition then carried on from from when they started it. Uh, you got your rum ration in the morning, say around eleven a.m. Got another one around dusk, kind of time, um, mm. and that tradition uh, of getting your daily tot lasted for two hundred and thirty nine years. Um, wow! It was <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was in there. It was. It, people look forward to it every day it was part of your you know it was part of your daily routine it was it was something mm. you really looked forward to as, as a, a sailor interestingly as i know this uh, most of our listeners will be in the states um the u.s navy rejected this quite early on it was it was quite um from 1862 you guys were like no we're not giving spirits to anyone you know you I know you guys have always led the charge on temperance and prohibition. and <laughs> yeah, We've always been oddly prudish, uh, even back yeah. then, I guess. <laughs> you, you, just, you just love the moral high ground, I guess. But yeah, it's, um, yeah you, guys, you guys killed off the, the rum rations pretty early doors. And, um, uh, and yeah, so, so which is why it might be a, a bit of a foreign concept, you know, to, um, to, to those of you listening in the States. So... Um, but yeah, we carried on with it. We, we carried on and, and we, we carried that tradition on up until 1970. Um, bear in mind, we invented nuclear submarines in 1958. So for 12 years, we had big red buttons and nukes. And we were like, <laughs> should we still give out the rum? And the answer was yes. <laughs> uh, holy crap. <laughs> So for 12 years, we argued over it and, uh, and, and for, for much longer, like there was still, there was lots of people who thought, you know, it didn't, it didn't fit because the technology was changing. You know, you've got to think about when this first started in the 16, 1700s, you know, it's, it's wooden sailing ships. It's like, it's a real, it's the real wild west, you know, it's, mm, it's not like mm -hmm. what you would imagine a modern military navy to be like today so by the time it got sure. to 1970 it was it was a little bit out of date a little bit antiquated and um 
and they decided it was best with all the with all the new tech on board that maybe we shouldn't have these submarines and everyone being half cut on the <laughs> on the ship. So wow. uh, so yeah, okay. Thirty first of July. 1970 uh, was the last ever rum ration that was given out and they called it Black Tot Day. They had a funeral for the rum. You know, it's like they'd lost their their favourite crewmate. And um, Wow. Uh, yeah, they all wore black armbands and, you know, some of the naval colleges held mock funerals and processions for this rum. And, uh, yeah, they really they were really gutted about it, you know. It was a real, <laughs> a real sad day. Are there any reports or is there any history of 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 a push to 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 get the the Royal Navy to change their mind about ending the tot? Um yeah, so there was a there was a big debate in in Parliament about it. So you can actually look up the the transcripts of it and you know, mm. there's there's plenty of people who were who were on the side of the rum, you know, they said, no, this is important for the the morale, this is tradition, this is, you know, Life at sea is still hard. We, we, they still need something to, to raise their spirits and keep them going and stuff, you know. And it's, um, wow. you know, because you you might be on you might be on the tour for, you know, we we think of most voyages being oh it'd be a short voyage or whatever. But some of these some of these campaigns would last. You know, they might be at, at sea for two years before they came back home. So, you know, having having things that kept their spirits up that kept them motivated was was so important we actually um just last week we interviewed uh, a gentleman who uh, his name is john hume and he gave out the rum rations from 1961 till 1970 so he he was wow. there firsthand dishing out the rum and um uh and yeah he was he was sharing some of his stories you can you can check it out on our on our black top page, but um, but yeah, it, it was it was incredible, like hearing it firsthand what what the rum meant to them and how the extent they would go to make sure they got their rum or get a little bit extra rum whenever they could. You oh, know, wow. it, was, <laughs> it was it's a real I, highlight of the day. I imagine that a rum ration might be used as currency as well on some of these ships. Is there any talk of that where people might say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm going to give someone else my morning's ration to get X. Do you hear any, have you heard any of that? Yeah, absolutely. uh, John had a lot of really good stories about that, you know, from, uh, uh, yeah, it it would cover everything from, you know, you might give the chef a little bit of your rum to get some extra food in return. Um, If you wanted someone to do a favor for you, you'd, you'd give them some rum. If you wanted someone to cover your shift, you could give them, your tartan like you know people would, would would cover you if you wanted to stay out late or do whatever <laughs> if they had uh, a, a common one an, an interesting one actually was shore leave so you know if they actually had some time at a base to go out and and get on land you know they had a lot of the 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 crew he was saying you know you'd have people going i want to go and see this girl or i want to go and uh you know catch up with my wife or whatever you know i haven't seen anyone for six months let's go and they'd give you your tots of rum or their tots of rum to you to to be like can you cover my shift because i want to go and spend some more time with my partner oh wow okay okay (laughs) that's fantastic so all of this this history right 239 years of the Royal Navy rationing out rum to the sailors. It ends July 31st, 1970. How does all of this history relate 
to that actual bottling of of black to last last consignment like what's what's in that where, yeah. where did that come from that's a that's a very good question um and it, and it's one we're still researching to be honest you know there's um i think the the perception of navy rum today is is often quite that it's quite simple it's trinidad or guyanese rum it's dark it's sweet yeah. it's you know nothing much to it um but that isn't actually how that rum came about at all, you know, and, and the more we delve into the blend and we find the records of the rums they bought and blended into this this blend for the Navy, it's it's quite incredible and, and quite a few surprises in that mix. Um, we, we came onto the scene, how our story started was, uh, uh, would have been almost 15 years ago now, um, an ex-sailor, came to Sikinder Singh, who owns Whiskey Exchange uh, here in the UK. And he had two flagons, which were these like stone ceramic jars uh, that held about four and a half litres of rum. Um, they covered in covered in wicker, had a little red wax seal on the top with the date on it. Um, and he, he came to Sikinder with these two flagons, said, I've got two navy rum flagons. Would you like to buy them from me? Yeah. And uh, Sikinder at that time hadn't seen them before. He said, yeah, okay. And so he bought the, bought the two flagons off him. Uh, the sailor told a friend who had uh, an, another old boy in the Navy who had five Navy rum flagons. He brought those along. <laughs> Sikinder bought those too. And then they told another mate who had 10 flagons. And at that point, he was like, okay, hold on. Where, you must be getting this rum from somewhere. Where, where is the, where's the source, you know? Um so Sikinder started doing this research. He started calling up, you know, the first port of calls, obviously, to contact the Navy and say, right, where, where is this rum? Because you must have had some left over. You know, you stopped it in 1970. And, and the vote to stop it all occurred within three days. Like, they had the vote on the 28th of July. Three days later, they had the last tot. So, and... And at any one time, they were they were blending about four million gallons of rum for the for the navy over, you know, oh at different times. God. We 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 think that scaled back a little bit by the time towards the end. But you know, they had a huge huge quantity of rum on hand, and they were they were creating one of the world's biggest rum blends at the time. You know, they were the biggest customer to a lot of distilleries in the Caribbean. So, sure, sure. So if they had all this rum and then suddenly they stopped it, where did that rum go? And it took Sikinda about three years to, to find it all um, because wow. the, Na the Navy themselves had actually got rid of most of it. You know, they, they'd put it into these stone jars, these flagons. They'd sealed it all up. Mm. They'd put it into these warehouses. But where all the old docks were on the River Thames is like prime real estate in London now. So, of course, the time came where it's like, well... We could probably store stuff somewhere else and we probably don't need all of this stuff anymore anyway. So hmm. um, where, warehouses were shut down and sold, stock was moved up, moved along and sold off or given away or whatever it was. Um, we know they kept some of the rum. So if you ever see you know, some of the royal weddings or state occasions, occasionally you'll see one of these flagons come out and they're oh, okay. uh, using it as tots for that. But um, especially if the... The person from the royal family or whatever was in the navy, they'll often use rum as their tot. 
But mm. yeah, the rest kind of went missing and it took a few few years to track it all down. Some of it had actually ended up in the States, some of it was in Europe. Um, and Skinner basically went around tracking all the all the people had sold the, these rums on, finding where it all gone around the world, and then bring it all back. And we now, we now basically have this like little stash of navy rum flagons up in our warehouse in Scotland, and and uh, you know a portion a portion of those were bottled to make black tot last consignment, and we put them all together and bottled that about ten years ago. And uh, we still we still have some flagons on hand as well, which I'm excited to see what we what we do with. But uh, but wow. yeah, it's but that's what, remarkable. It's it's yeah, it's it's incredible, you know. And this and this rum that went into last consignment, these flagons, you know, it's you can't recreate it today. This is this is the crazy part because um, to give you some backstory on the Navy rum blend, they built these blending vats in London. They were blending, as I say, about 4 million gallons of rum. They were getting rum from lots of distilleries, which today have closed down and uh, are demolished. All of the casks would have been shipped at sea, aging at sea, no plastic containers back then. So everything mm-hmm. was getting that mm-hmm. dynamic aging or aging at sea, however you want to call it blended in as say these giant open wooden vats so you would have had tremendous angel share even in london you know the the angel share of these vats would have been almost 10 percent a year you know because so much was evaporating off uh the vats caught fire twice um there's a great story where where the top of these vats were just all on fire and this rum's burning off it was like the ultimate tiki bar right and like all this rum <laughs> burning off <laughs> and they sent the fire brigade in to put out the fires and it took them a week and the first few days, they had to keep switching people out because the fumes were just making all of the fire brigade drunk. So they had to like, <laughs> they couldn't couldn't God, stay in there for very crap. long, and had to find different ways of actually like filtering out all these fumes. So so yeah, this rum's this rum's seen some history. It's um it's seen some pretty crazy days, and um uh, and yeah, we we can we even if we tried to make something like it it would never be the same it would never have that complexity you yeah. know that blend was continuously being topped up for over you know from the early 1800s to pretty much near the end of 1970 so for over a hundred years you're just continuously adding like this like the ultimate mother mother broth of rum you know yeah, <laughs> like just sure. completely yeah. adding to it so That's so in, in that black tot the last consignment in the, the rum in all of those flagons because you're just continually topping off and never really getting to the bottom of your vat, there could be rums that are 200-ish years old mixed in with some younger stuff in there as well. Well, absolutely. And and I guess it, you know, you've got to look at, um, uh, you know, and again, we try to be very open with how that blending process works and depending on how you, how you see that blend and how, how much you think is new rum and old rum. But, but yeah, from from we we reckon it's around eighteen oh four they first built the vats, and it would have been sometime just before nineteen seventy where they sort of started de- deconstructing and taking it off. So yeah, almost one hundred and sixty, one hundred and seventy years continuously blending, and and the vats were designed wow. with that intention in mind to keep parts of the rum in. So a third of the way up the vat, you had a pipe 
connecting these three vats together. So like if you imagine mm. like a line, a line arm connecting, you know, one vat to vat two, vat two to vat three. So the rum could flow between the three vats. So it didn't matter which one you topped up. But because the pipe was a third of the way up, there was always a, a base reserve of rum at the bottom of these vats that could you could mm. never draw off past that point. So they were designed to be continuously added and the old blends would always be influencing the newer rums added to it. So, mm. so first off, thank you for all that. That That is such fun <laughs> history. It's It's wild history and I don't think... You know, there's really nothing like it in any other spirits world. It's it's truly its own history, which is super fun. So now, so now we're fast forwarding to 2019, 2020, and yeah. and now there's there's a new black top coming out, and our friend um, Ollie Chilton, who's been on the podcast before. And he's the the master blender for Port Askeg. He does the selections for Single Malts of Scotland and, and some other brands. He, a whiskey guy, was charged with blending a rum to go under the black top label. Mm. And now I, this is what I have in my glass. Actually, I need to refill my glass because it's just too damn drinkable. But could you talk a, talk a bit about you know the the new black top, which is very different, I think, from Black Top mm. Last Consignment. And and I think in, in a good way. You know, they're 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 two two very different rums and you know, I think the the newer one kind of fits my palate a little more. It's a bit more vibrant. It's it's less sort of oak influenced and relaxed and heavy. There's there's a brightness to it which I quite love. Um, there's fewer hundred and fifty year old rums in it. <laughs> yeah, if you were 150 year old wrong, um, but I wonder <laughs> if if you could talk about the the design of that rum and the in the aim for it. Absolutely. So um, the conversation started, I suppose, after after the last consignment came out, and you know, for anyone who's who's tried it, you know, it's it is it's a it's a little bit of history. Um, but as I say, it's. It, it would be impossible today with today's production methods and the distillers we have available to us and just everything about how that works. It would be impossible to recreate that rum and, and do it and to do it justice. You know, we, maybe yeah. we could get something close, but to, to really do it the service that it, it deserves, it's, it, we just don't think it's possible. Um, mm. And so, of course, the conversation came up pretty quickly well what do you do when the last consignment runs out what do we do when there are no more flagons when there are no more no more rums and pretty quickly the the idea came about well we should probably start a new blend you know we should we should start again we should sort of hit reset if the navy's not going to do a blend we'll do a blend you know so how do we how do we do that how do we start and Mm. um they, they spent a lot of time doing it. As I say, our, our last last release with Last Consignment was 10 years ago. Um, we had one one release about five years ago um, of some 40-year-old Demerara, Demerara rum from Guyana oh, that we yeah. found. I've had that. It's um, delicious. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's only there's less than 300 bottles uh, in the world of that. You know, it's it's and it's that's even 
crazy, crazy uh, rare and expensive, you know. So, so yeah, so it's been a long time since we'd actually released anything. And, and the idea of actually creating something and making something that we were able to sustain and keep going and mm. keep evolving ourselves was was really the vision for it and now how to do that and how to how to do it honor and and, and whether to make that under the black top name because obviously you know black top has so much history so then to add a a new one to the range is almost it's quite ballsy you know it's quite um, <laughs> uh, um yeah you've, you've got to be really confident about what you're putting in that bottle to to carry on the name so so they spent a lot of time with it and um you know workshop different ideas how they wanted to taste it and as you say ollie's a a whiskey blender and a whiskey drinker um first and foremost you know whiskey is easily his first passion um as as rum is for me you know it's like (laughs) um and don't tell his wife that yeah <laughs> second passion uh yeah <laughs> and and with Sekinda too you know it's it's called the whiskey exchange for for a reason i keep trying to get him to change the name to rum exchange as well but you know it's <laughs> sticking by it so um so as whiskey drinkers you know their their biggest thing was like well we want a rum that is bigger ballsier more more texturally complete you know we don't want anything thin we don't want the light and uncomplicated we want something that as a whiskey drinker we would appreciate you know and and they they played around with the blend for quite a long time so it was over once they actually started making the blend it took them just over two years to actually settle on settle on the the blend of rums that they wanted um, they had 26 different iterations of it before they finally said, <laughs> okay, this is the one. And and even now, you know, you'll hear them talking, they're like, well, maybe we could, you know, adjust this a bit or adjust that. <laughs> they're, con- they're just perfectionists, you know. So, um, yeah. but yes, the, the, in the end, the, the bottle that we have, the Black Top Finest Caribbean, um, end up being a blend of four, four different component rums, uh, from three different countries, so Barbados, two rums from Guyana, and then one rum from Jamaica in there as well, um, mm-hmm. and and it's good because each you know each of those components brings a different thing to the mix. So the Barbados component is very fruity, tropical. All those fruits we were talking about earlier, you know, that's your pina colada. You've got sure. the two two Guyanese rums, which kind of hit different ends of the spectrum of um, sort of a, a more bitter licorice darker sort of cacao notes and then at the the top end you've got these rich chocolatey sweeter notes um and and those two rums together do a quite good job of 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 giving you this overall sort of chocolatey feel um Mm. and then and then the jamaica rum jamaica's an interesting uh, choice and one that you won't see in a lot of navy rum blends because the the original navy actually cut jamaica from the blend uh from the really? late 1800s because they said jamaica is too it's too pungent it's too it's too intense it's too flavorful like all those high esters that like burnt rubber that tire fire <laughs> smell that you were talking about before <laughs> it was it was overpowering the rest of the blend you know it's it's and you only need a touch of jamaica sometimes and it can just re- it, it takes over you know so mm-hmm. we've reintroduced that jamaica into our blend here because i you know people are 
uh, getting into those more intense funky flavors you know in the rum world all the rum geeks are like yeah give me it's like it's like a you know ppm and whiskey go, oh i want the smokiest yeah, thing right? ever you know it's like no i want the funkiest right. thing ever i want, I want to be crying yep. when i drink my rum you know they, like, <laughs> <laughs> like so, hops and ipa beers yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah, just yeah, like yeah. Yeah. You know those we've we've we all know those people or some of us are those people. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I I always talk about. I've got this friend in Amsterdam, Chris, uh, who runs the Rum Symposium over in Amsterdam, and uh, he was uh, he pulled out this Velia bottling of uh, Teca from Long Pond in Jamaica, which is like uh, basically in Jamaica you can have anywhere from zero to sixteen hundred esters. That's your that's your ballpark because sixteen hundred is the legal limit for export. Okay, so okay. zero to sixteen hundred, and of course this is like fifteen sixteen hundred ester rum. And he's like, oh, try this, you know, I try it, and it's you know it's great but it's like rocket fuel it's like so intense so <laughs> full on and we were having just this nice easy night and i'm like oh come on and he's like oh, isn't it beautiful isn't it wonderful and i'm like surely not like come on you you like he's like oh yes pours himself another and i'm like okay. <laughs> Chris, yeah, he's Chris what's is known as guy. a fetishist he's a fetishist. <laughs> <laughs> love loves the funk you know it's like yeah, it's uh, it's quite something to behold. Um, but the quantity in black tot is just enough to be interesting without ruining the parade. Yeah, we we hope so. So so we've um, this is something really cool that I'm I'm really proud of. We're doing in black tot, which um, I don't I I haven't seen it done in any other rum in the world. But we're we're giving breakdowns of all our percentages and our blends and and like yes. putting down exactly what component and how much and everything in. So. Um, we'll be putting all this up we're, we're redoing all the website and stuff at the moment but all that information will be on there and, and hopefully on the label soon as well uh, but yeah so the Barbados makes up 35% of the blend the two Guyanese together make up 60% and then the Jamaica is just a little 5% at the end so it's just a just a touch but hopefully enough to make it make it interesting without as you say you know setting fire to the whole thing <laughs> what I love too about uh, about that breakdown is you also mention age and the fact that one of them is unaged. Is it the is it the Jamaican or the Guyanese? One of the Guyanese rums. Yeah, so the we've got twin. So the guy the Guyana, as I say, makes up sixty percent of the overall blend, um, and that's forty percent is an aged uh, three to five year old Guyanese rum, mm -hmm. and then. 20% is unaged Guyanese rum. Um, okay. And that's that's the one that gives you that bitter licorice kind of cacao note that mm. I, was, I was mentioning mm -hmm. before. So, And it, it's really interesting because one of the things we're going to do in when we're able to travel again and do all this in real life is we're going to have these masterclasses and, and I'm going to bring the components out for people so people can try each of the four component rums and then the final blend as well and yeah. you can see for yourself so if you're if you're just getting into rum it will give you an idea of okay this is what Barbados, Ghana and Jamaica taste like I can understand the difference between those three countries and this is what it tastes like together but if you're a complete rum nerd uh, you'll get to try this 
blend that's been deconstructed which normally you know normally you'll get some bullshit from a brand like oh it's a secret recipe and oh we can't tell you what's in it and you know we swam to a distillery somewhere and found this barrel and you know it's filled with unicorn tears and it's like no why don't we actually just tell you what's in the rum and how we put it together and why and yep you know that seems uh, i don't know for me for me it's like watching these chefs on tv you know you watch I don't know, Gordon Ramsay or someone on TV, and it's like, oh, he's giving you his recipe. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, you've got a long way to go before you become Gordon Ramsay. You might be able to kind of copy yeah. it or do, do an okay <laughs> job, but, like, we'd rather tell you what's in the rum so you can appreciate the rum rather than all smoke and mirrors and then, you know, <laughs> just hope yeah, you like 100%. it. A hundred percent. It's been one, for me, one of the interesting parts of the rise of craft brewers in the United States is those who kind of took off first have been quite happy to share mash bills, quite happy to talk about the yeast, you know, mm. because they say, like, we know what it takes to put this together. You're not just going to go out and do this yourself. Mm. And so it's, it's nice to see that attitude come to rum as well. And, and of course, somebody we talk about all the time, John Glazer with Compass Box, where you yes. can go to John's website, Compass Box's website, and see the breakdowns because you're not mm. going to go out tomorrow and create Compass Box. It ain't happening. So yes. why not share the information mm. where you can and when you can? Yeah, no, it's, yeah. Um, I, I'm really excited. We actually had a, um, we had a label uh, leak, well, not leak, but a, a label approved by the TTB the other day for the 50th anniversary blend that we've done. Mm-hmm. And this was the first thing. So Ollie and I went back and forth for hours on this label because, you know, <laughs> I was like, let's put all the information on it. It's like, uh, maybe, okay. We, we worked it out together and we were like, what information can we squeeze on the label? What can't we, whatever. And we, we were like, you know, we both had things we wanted on there. And, and in the end, it ends <laughs> up being like, I mean, this label, it's, it's, it's a lot going on on that label. And if uh, <laughs> you, know, um, uh, you, you can obviously look it up online. And uh, a friend of mine, Matt Petrek from Cocktail Wonk, uh, shared the label because he scours the TTB and he's, he's, he's that guy in rum who's like, ah, here's something new coming out. Like, put it out first. <laughs> and, uh, and he shared the label. And, I, and I'm going like, ah, oh, we were going to announce this on Black Tot. Yep. And, um, but yeah, I, I should have clicked it was going to happen. But then the response online has just been phenomenal. Like, like just seeing people sharing it, going like, wow, like this is what transparency looks like. And, and every, everything I hoped it would, would communicate, I think it has. And, and hopefully people sit, you know, hopefully people can look, pick up a bottle of black tart. Uh, and especially that one when it comes out and go, oh, okay, these guys really want to, you know, it's no smoke and mirrors, which is the normal, yeah. <laughs> the normal standard in the rum industry. It's like, no, let's tell you exactly what's going on in there. So um, I'm excited. I'm excited that we're taking the brand in that direction and that we're able to do it because you know it's it's hard with rums like Last Consignment. You know, we're trying to find out all that information. We're trying to find the old records of what rums they bought and where the countries where it came from and and mm. put that information back together retrospectively. Um, and I think it's it would be so exciting for the things we're creating to be able to say, no, this is this is what we put in it and why. But I like the fact that that level of transparency brings us full circle from where we started our conversation just on rum writ large. And if you want to release a blend, 
you've got two choices. Number one, you can come out and say, here's a blend. We're not going to tell you anything about it. Buy it and enjoy it. Or you can take the approach that you have done, which is, okay, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get to the business of education. For those who want to learn, come on in. And and it's a much bigger proposition in front of you. But clearly, you're an engaged, passionate rum advocate and you're clearly ready and have been doing so, rolling up your sleeves and getting to work on the business of rum education. And I commend you. <laughs> that's that's why we wear tiki shirts, because our sleeves are already rolled up. We're ready to roll. <laughs> <laughs> Power to you. Do we, do we have another thing to get out of here, Josh, or more questions? Or I've, I've got one last question for you. Your project aside, right, Black Tot aside, what about the rum world in general has, has got you si- excited? What are you looking toward in rum? Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping that the rum world comes comes together really uh, because I think we've got something unique that is is very different to all other spirits I think we've got you know we have a very different history a very, very different culture with it um, we've got a very different background a very different story to tell uh, from a lot of other spirits and I haven't seen a spirit in, in my time in the bar world that's gone from being such an afterthought to being something so prestigious and or with the potential mm. for that prestige you know something that's really gone from oh this is just something spiced around cheap nasty whatever to being like wow we've got all of these incredible bottlings these velliers these um you know all four squares, all these different things, black tart, all the all the different all these different companies putting out these top end rums, which are you know, you guys have been doing this podcast for three years and now suddenly, you know, we're doing a rum podcast. It's like mm-hmm. something something is changing. Some there's <laughs> there's a different conversation happening. Yeah. And I think the more and more the whiskey lovers notice that, the better it is for the rum industry. Um and I, th- I think we have to be careful as an industry. I think it's very, because we have so much diversity, because we have so much freedom in some things, you know, like everyone right now, now that rum is sort of starting to get a little bit of the spotlight um, and, and trying to take some of that way, you know, a lot of people are vying for position and, and, and trying to make rum this way or that way or like this is how rum should be or rum can only be this or whatever it is. And I think... yeah, yeah. What I really hope for the rum world is that we go, okay, it, it, you know, we keep that diversity, we keep that variety out there. Um, yes, we know there'll always be great producers and there'll be shitty producers and mass-produced ones or whatever. But ultimately, that, that diversity, that variety is something very, very special in the rum world. Um, and I hope that we, we sort of bring it together and we, we realise that, you know, r- another rum isn't our competitor, you know, another rum mm-hmm. isn't, our, uh, isn't against us. It's like, no, any, you know, whiskey's our competitor, gin's our competitor, you know, bloody vodka's our competitor. <laughs> we, rum still has a long way to go before we're, we're centre stage. You know, right now we're, you know, we're getting on the credits, but we're, we're the supporting, supporting act here. 
we want you know i'd love to see rum come into its own and 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 come in in a, in a big way and, and really you know impress some people i want you know your listeners who who probably have some absolutely outstanding whiskies on their back bar uh to have a few few extra rums up there you know and go okay yeah because i mean it's uh, it's incredible i look at i look at what you guys buy in whiskey and for the same price in rum you can have some you, you'd have a back bar you know two or three times the size at least <laughs> and uh and you'd have some uh, amazing stuff in there so it's a great it's a great time to get into rum um you know, obviously, I I really want us to be a part of that and really lead the charge. With, you know, my goal is for us to be the most transparent rum uh, we can and and rum blend that we can. And but also, I I really see us as, you know, the whole ethos behind the Navy Blend was using rums from all different countries, bring it all together. It was you know, it was a world blend, and and I hope uh, with, with black top, you know, we can sort of carry that on in our new blends and really work with lots of different distilleries and Mm -hmm. countries. And, and, you know, I, I see our job as sort of bringing the world of rum together, um, in our blends, but also in, in the way we talk about rum and the way we, we excite people about rum. So it's, um, I, I'm very, I'm very excited for, for myself that I'm, I'm in a position where I can talk about all different countries and regions because those are regions we might use in our blend rather than being locked to just one particular island and, and just, well, that's how we do it. So everyone else is whatever. You know? But what's fascinating about listening to you today, Mitch, is you're, you're, you're making me think of Holly Sidewand, who we just, just posted that. an interview yep. with Holly just a couple of months ago or a few months ago, where Holly is a brand ambassador for the Bacardi single malt distilleries. Mm-hmm. Right. When Holly walks into a bar, a training, an education, uh, what have you, she's talking about the world of whiskey. And you can't just understand the five Bacardi distilleries, single malt distilleries, in a nutshell. You have to talk about the entire category. And to hear you saying exactly that about rum and what you're excited for going forward with rum makes me very happy and very excited to champion you. And we mention Holly's name all the time, as I'm doing right now. But now to be mentioning Mitchie's name going forward as well for those who are getting into rum. And I'm sure we'll speak to you again on the podcast and see where that world of rum is going. And last thing I want to say is just an observation that Josh and I were discussing internally and on an episode of the podcast at some point uh, in the recent past, is we put an Angostura uh, rum up for sale on our website. And whereas our single malt scotchies, our, our single malts writ large, are selling out in five minutes, six minutes, ten minutes, our Angostura took a whole weekend to sell out, <laughs> Right. And, and it was really interesting because in looking back within the history of our company, we observed with that Angostura what we'd observed two and three years prior. That's where our single malts were two and three years ago. And that, that's when our company was really ramping up. And we thought, mm. oh, gosh, we sold that out in a weekend. Gosh, we're going places. Mm. Now we look at the rum and compared to single malt, oh, that was a slow burner. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, holy moly, is rum starting to go places. Yeah. And we are hearing from bourbon drinkers that they're naturally taking to rum. 
We're hearing from single malt drinkers. They're looking to see what they'll get bang for their buck, Mm -hmm. right? And there is quality. There is bargains, right, to be had within rum right now. And so whereas we spoke to Dave Broom around this time last year, May of last year, and, and Dave Broom has been saying for years... Rum is coming, rum is coming, rum is coming, rum is coming. Mm. And and firmly believes that it might not happen. But if he just keeps saying it long enough, it might just happen. <laughs> it, it's great hearing that rum might be about to get that day. And as you talk about the hope for, for what comes next for rum, uh, I'm hoping it, it dovetails with what Dave Broom has been saying now for a decade, a decade and a half, mm. two decades, because it is a fantastic category. And if we can give people a foothold within it, I think they'll take off running, but mm. we need to get them that foothold. And mm. so yeah, good luck to you, Mitch, in, in establishing that foothold and let's get the hordes into rum and let's, let's get it a rocking category. Yes. Well, thank you. And th- thank you very much for the kind words, Jason. But also thank you. Thank you for giving us a, a, a platform to, to talk to the listeners, you know, because I think, um, yeah, it's, you know, that I, I think that will be the, the trick. You know, I think as much as our little rum bubble is, is nice and it's good and it's slowly growing, you know, the, you know, your listeners appreciate fine spirits. It, you know, they they found a home in whiskey, obviously. But if mm. we can hopefully show them something that's, you know, also of a similar standard or a similar quality and something else, you know, I think it might might pique their interest. So uh, we've got some hundred percent. We've got some little tricks up our sleeves. So hopefully we can. Uh, <laughs> Love that. We can impress you guys when we get over there. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you both. Jason, before we thank the good Mitch Wilson, you know, as we were leading in to yes. our conversation with him, yes. we we're having this wonderful conversation discussing is rum coming? Let's, you know, here's Dave Broom's book. Mitch is going to tell us some history. <laughs> and he's going to talk about black tot. And then you went all negative. And then you're like, oh, Joshua didn't send me any rum. I couldn't enjoy the rum. And to this day, I still can't enjoy the rum. I'm looking around my office. I still have no, no black tot in here. It's black true. tot. Hello, black tot. You know, I should no, probably. No black tot. Sorry, man. Pour some for myself. Uh, yeah, you you go ahead. You pour some black top for the news and email segments of yeah. this, and I'll just sit and stare at the walls. Well, that cork sounds delicious. Sounds oh ideal. I tell you, isn't the packaging? Oh, you know what? You don't have a bottle in front of you, but the packaging is quite nice. It's even better. <laughs> and, our, and our dear listeners aren't even on Facetime <laughs> with you, so they can't even see it. Here, so, so since since I took it negative, I was going to back it up coming out of the interview before we thank Mitch for his time and his education. And I was going to say you said a word, and and we like to occasionally on this podcast stop for a moment to identify words that Joshua says wrong. <laughs> and so that Joshua says wrong. But here's the thing. <laughs> yeah, you you named you named this uh, I don't know category segment, and you 
say the word primer. And you had me, and this, this, was, this was years ago, because I, as I say, I'd like to prove you wrong. You had me running to the dictionary because just like all of the sudden, yeah. which we have yeah. come to learn takes us back to Shakespeare. Yes, yeah. And, and I think common usage is all of a sudden. I've always known that word that you use as primer, a primer. Oh. And so primer had me thinking, that just seems so wrong. It has to have a root in something right. Yeah. And so I, I went off and I, I looked it up. I did my research. Okay. And you, sir, are 100% correct. Oh, thank God. That primer is how we talk about something being an introduction Correct, to yeah. a larger category. And primer remains the first coat of paint. Of paint, yeah. One puts on a wall before putting a coloured paint Correct. over the top of it. And so here's my thing. I do. I, I love I love having the opportunity to tell you just how wrong you are. I really do. I really <laughs> I really live for that. Jesus However Christ. Uh, I also love it when I learn something from you. And so there's a reason that I've taken to talking about all of this sudden. I haven't started using it. I haven't lost my mind. I'm not syphilitic. <laughs> but <laughs> we did though? get an email. Chris Sebastian did write in to say, thanks for covering my email. My wife was very pleased to hear I'm not syphilitic. So, you know, I'm not a doctor. I just play one on the pad cost. Yes, yeah, so I like it that I learned about all of this sudden from you. And I like it that I learned about Primer from you. It's, it's remarkable. I, I, you know, and so I did. I wanted to back it up, take us back. For anybody in the audience who was thinking, what the fuck did Joshua just say there? Did he just Primer? Like rhymes with Trimmer? Like what is he talking about? I wanted to come to your defense, Joshua yeah. Hatton. Yeah. And I wanted to tell those people, look, my best friend and business partner has got this under control. So learn for a second. Boom. Learn from him. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having my You're back. Welcome. Absolutely. This will get us through to the next ridiculous thing you say on this podcast. <laughs> and now I'm like racking my brain for ridiculous <laughs> things to say. I just don't have them, Jason. Oh. Don't try so hard. You'll get it. This is we're back in your wheelhouse. Don't don't stress it. Oh. Uh, but wasn't Mitch fantastic? That was so brilliant. I so enjoyed talking with him and and really learning from him. I found out about Mitch only because Impex had taken on the the Black Tot brand and he was hired on as as the brand ambassador for Black Tot and you can you can see why. I mean, his knowledge of rum is exhaustive, and as is his knowledge of the history around it. And this was, you know, something interesting in in talking with him, in listening to him, but also in in talking with Richard Seal, which is an episode we'll be releasing a little further down. Is actually you can learn about global history through the lens of rum. And I 100%. think that that is 100%. such a fascinating idea that 
Well, it's, 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 it's the history of colonialism. It's the yeah. history of the slave trade. Um, it's, you know, it's, you know, the, the history of the British Empire mm. and, and even all the, the negativity. And I'm, I'm putting even a sheen on it, talking negativity, um, <laughs> that, that, you know, was transported around the globe. And, and it's, a, it's another interesting one that you see, you know, within the history of whiskey, there was a period where the, the landed gentry, the upper class, mm. um, those with money were not drinking whiskey because it was, it was the drink of the peasants. Rum had, this, rum had the same thing going on where in the newly founded you know, United States of America, rum was of the British Empire. And mm-hmm. so, you know, from 1776 onwards, the United States needs a drink of its own. Then you get the beginning <laughs> of whiskey, yeah, right? Exactly. And whiskey with with a knee. Yeah. And so it's so it's it's interesting even how individuals and groups of individuals have defined themselves with regards to key spirits as well. Yeah, yeah fascinating stuff, man. I'm I'm really I'm excited to be I wouldn't say dipping a toe, but jumping into this world of rum. And, you know, I know you and I are, are planning to, to dig even deeper. So with that said, firstly, thank you, Mitch Wilson. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, we Mitch. really, really appreciate the conversation. And, and for our listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll stick around. Uh, we are, like we've mentioned a couple times in this podcast, we will have a Richard Seal episode, and, and he is the guy behind uh, Foursquare Rum. So that will be it, loads of And fun. he's another one, and talking to him, where he's, he's framing rum within, within its history, you know, you know as, a, as a category, and even, you know, talking about, and I, again, and I just can't help myself, and I apologize if it's offensive to anybody who, who is a rum lover, but I, I can't help but come back to, whiskey circles is how I understand mm-hmm. you know the spirits landscape around me but but to think about those who would be farming sugarcane and would have a still on site because they were farming that cane but that's what they did but, in Scotland right yeah. right right but but then you end up with kind of the 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 Gosh, I want to say amelioration and I'm not even sure that's that's the right word that I want to be using homogenization but, but, but you, it is one part of it, right? Yeah. Where where you then start to lose the the individuality you within it, and it becomes more industrial, mm, right? There and, you go, industrial. You, yeah. you, you know, you have the buying up of those who were smaller and more independent, mm-hmm. and then you become you know industrialized sugar production. The way we've got industrialized barley production, right? But then rum, same as whiskey. You've then got the retreat back to no, let's bring it back to the farm. Let's return to growing our own cane. You know, Uncle Holman, let's go back to uh, farming our own barley. Here's, gosh, I've apparently been reading a lot down lockdown. So I, I just finished uh, Andrew Jefford's, um, oh gosh. So oh, now, Pete, now Pete Smoke, Pete Smoke and... Pete Smoke and Spirit. Yes, that's a great book. Right, which, which is wonderful because it's about Isla and Isla's people as much as it is about the distilleries. But he's talking to Mark French, who owns farmland mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the Rins, 
right? Mm-hmm. And Mark French, the farmer, is talking about what the future holds. This book was published in 2004. He's talking about this incoming Kilhoman farmhouse distillery mm-hmm. yeah. and how they're going to look to grow barley on this wonderful, some of the best agricultural land on all of Isla that overlooks Loch Gorm, right? That's on the edge of Macker Bay, right? <laughs> it's phenomenal reading about that, knowing you're now, here we are, you know, reading that in 2020 and looking backwards and knowing exactly what came of it, mm-hmm. but also Colhoman going on to buy Mark French's farm and buying Mark French's farmland. Mm-hmm. And instead of it being Mark French, the one with the distillery, it's Colhoman that's now the one with the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Another recommendation for our listeners out there, if you're if you got some time on your hands and you're you're, you're sitting at home twiddling your thumbs. Well worth um, a read. Yep. Yeah, another captivating one. I first picked that up when it was it was first released and kind of leafed through it. And, and as I do with a lot of the whiskey books I bring in, I, I read the introduction, I read the first chapter, I get kind of the lay of the land, something else captures my attention and it goes on the bookshelf and mm-hmm. I go off and I read the introduction of something else and, uh, and then something else <laughs> captures my attention. It's been really nice returning and just kind of catching up with things I yeah. started but didn't yeah. finish. So... Do we have much to say in the news? We do. We've got a little bit to say in the news. So let's let's wake up the paper boy. Extra, extra, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, 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 read all about it. Me and that Playboy in trouble again. Extra, I think he's awake. Without any shadow of a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've heard enough. We've got a little bit of news, Jason, because tomorrow. You and I are are launching two new casks for sale on the website. It's true. It's it's really true. I like that our release schedule has now fallen in line with our podcasting schedule. Because <laughs> I remember as announcing, if you're listening to the last episode on the day it went live, we were just about to release the Kalila. Which has been selling great guns. We still have a little bit left. We're actually going to we take it off of the website for a little bit because uh, we may have mentioned it on the podcast here or maybe it was just on Facebook. But we now have two different shippers. We do. And two different cities with two different warehouses. Correct. And because of that... We have to choose, okay, which shipper is going to ship which whiskey? And if, because we've started releasing sherry butts, you know, casks casks that have, you know, many more bottles coming out of them, we're actually not selling out right away. And so... It's true. It's tremendous. (laughs) Absolutely tremendous. It's fantastic. So so in in this case, Kalila is being shipped by one retailer. Uh, but another retailer is about to start shipping, and I'll get into that in a little bit, uh, our next two casks. And so we're going to shut off Kalila for a little bit. We'll turn that back on when we release our Imperial, which is coming in, in a few weeks. But we're turning off the Kalila, but turning back on our blended malt, which is uh, exactly. from first of all, Sherry okay. Butt. Absolutely. And then the two new whiskeys that are being released. One is a nine-year-old blended Isla malt from a first fill bourbon barrel. Mm-hmm. 
which is stunning. Yep. And then the second one is a 19-year-old, and and this is the third in our line of whiskeys we're calling Stones of Stenness. Yeah, and just I just want to pivot back quickly. I'll let you speak more on the Stones of Stenness in just a second. I just want to pivot back quickly because I know we've we've talked about this previously, but this blended Isla malt hmm. is either from Diageo or Beam Santori, which means it's either a combination of Kalila and Lagavulin or a combination of Beaumont and Laphroaig. And and I, and I do, I, I know we talked about this in the, the news segment from the last episode, but I just wanted to quickly repeat that because it's a fun little experiment in picking up that single cask mm-hmm. and, and saying, first of all, what would it be like if you put Khalil and Lagavulin together? What would it be like if you put Beaumont and Laphroaig together in, a, in one glass, right? What, what would that be like? Um, it's been done. And it's sat for nine years in First Fill Bourbon, which is a wonderful way mm-hmm. to explore Isla Malts. And so, yeah, there's tons of fun there. And $95 a bottle, yeah. um, I yeah. think, puts it at a price point. Obviously, there's no tariffs on the blended malts. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think it puts it at a price point where there's there's fun to be had there. And I, and I know because it is First Fill Bourbon, that one is going to sell out. There's no doubt yeah, in my mind. Yeah. Now, one thing that I that I want to make very clear here about the blended Isla is even we don't know exactly who the pairing is because the paperwork doesn't say as such. It says blended Isla malt whiskey. That's your paperwork. So all we were able to do is go by flavor. Now, I feel very confident and who I think it is. Do you feel as confident I as I do? Yeah. You do? Yeah. yeah. I do. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to hear what our nation members think. Right? So, okay. So the blended Isla and then the 19-year-old Stones of Stenness, that one's from a bourbon hogshead, second fill. And actually, we got a fair few number of bottles out of that one, just around 300 yep, from that cask. Yep. And that's uh, 195. And so, those of you that are listening to this, dollars, oh dollars, not not drachmas, <laughs> not drachmas, not not pesetas, <laughs> not euros, <laughs> 195 dollars. So, for those of you who are looking to pick up the blended Isla or the and or the stones of Stenness, if you missed out on the blended malt, or maybe you said, you know what, I wish I had more blended malt. Because we've gotten past the point of potentially selling this out within a few minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. If, if you want to grab another bottle or two, please feel free to do it. And then yeah, yeah. you'll get your, your flat $10 shipping rate across that and the blended Isla and the Stones of Stenness. So this is going to be a really good sales day for our members because they're they're going to get a bigger deal here or the opportunity to get a bigger deal here <laughs> which makes it somewhat selfishly it's going to be a tough shipping week or two uh, <laughs> anything that becomes that good for nation members is going to have a knock-on effect on shipping <laughs> and so things are going to slow down on that part because we're going to be back to okay here's a nine-year-old blended malt Yes, from Isla. Here's a 10-year-old blended malt. 
yes from various regions. Oh, and here's that 19-year-old Stones of Stinnes. Okay, the boom, that goes into the box. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we've always said it about our shipping. We try to go slow and steady. We try to limit mistakes as much as possible. You know, mistakes cost us money. There's just no getting away from that. We're a small company. Expensive mistakes in shipping are mistakes we can't afford to have. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to having a 10-year-old blended malt from various regions going out the same time as a blended malt, nine-year-old from Isla, we're telling our shipper, slow and steady. Get the nine right to the people that bought nine, get the 10 right to the people that bought 10, and get mm -hmm. the quantities right for people who bought multiples. Yep. So, yep. Yep. As they say, Jason, it's the age-old saying, slow and steady gets the worm. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And then all those leaves fall off those branches when all of that sense is made. Uh, what Beauty. else? Yeah, the fun. Fun continues. And then just because we like to start sowing seeds for it, we're starting to, to plan, uh, talking about branches on trees and leaves on branches, we're starting to flesh out our seventh retail release and get a sense for what that might look like, not just for the United States, but also for the United Kingdom, Europe, and rest of the world. And then the other thing that I'll add on here, I mentioned before we have an Imperial coming out. That'll be the second in our Woodcut series. Our first was the 30-year-old Beaumont, which was released August of 2019. It was. We were almost a, a full year around the sun on that one. Mm -hmm. And so come August-ish... Uh, of 2020 will be our 30-year-old Imperial. That'll be 395, just as the Beaumont is, uh, or sorry, Beaumont was, but Shutter Distillery, 30-year-old <laughs> juice. Yeah. For two seconds, you gave somebody hope somewhere that that was going to reappear <laughs> no. on the website. <laughs> he said this was. He said, oh, oh, God damn it. <laughs> um, and then, and then the last thing that I want to mention: people have been asking us. What's going on with those ryes you talked about? Right? Yep, we they have, have two ryes coming. We are going to have a bit of a deeper dive on that for our next One Nation Under Whiskey episode. We'll, we'll go a bit deeper into that. And hopefully, too, we might have at least a little bit more to share on our 24-year-old Kentucky bourbon from a famous distillery that experienced a fire in the 90s. And, you know, and if we're going crazy with those, we might as well talk a bit more about balconies that next time as well. Oh, jeez, Louise. Yeah, plenty going on, right? Jeez, it is, it is when you start to break it down. Yeah, we got stuff going on all the time. So, yeah, let's stick a pin in it. I tell you, when I, when I hear all of these things, for me as a whiskey lover, when I hear like Springbank you know, they're releasing news. I get their newsletter and I hear what's going to be released. Or if Kilhoman do, is doing something special, I get excited. But every single time I hear this news, I think of this Adam Sandler clip in my head. I've got a big fucking boner right now. Mm, I see. Well, sexual arousal is not uncommon during periods of nervous tension. I do not take offense. I'm glad we never get too erudite around these parts. <laughs> Jason. Joshua. Jason. Joshua. Jason. Joshua. Jason. Joshua, feels so bad for our dear listeners. Uh, here's the thing. We, we did have some emails come in, but this is one of the things I love about our listeners. Like The last three emails that came in were 
each of them had, I would say, three to four good long paragraphs that require us to do a lot of thinking and a lot of research. And I don't have enough head brains for that right now. Yeah, my my research time has gone on Andrew Jefford and Dave Bruce. So <laughs> I am I'm a little fully loaded right now as well. And then of course Mitch, you know, we're dedicating our head brain space yes. to what Mitch told yeah. us today. Yeah. So rather than bring up uh, something big here, because it's been a long enough episode as it is, let's get out of here on a toast. I'll raise some uh, some nice nice some nice black top rum. Jason, what do you have in your glass? Any black oh, top that's rum? That's interesting. Yeah, I, I poured some black top rum as well. Mmm, it is delicious. <laughs> Gosh, I'm I'm smelling the nose. Mm-hmm, yeah. It is. Very nosy, very nosy. Yep. Is on the, the on the palate, here, let, let, yeah, here's okay. my big compliment. On the palate, it is very palatable. I was palatable, and and yeah, I I stand by that. Color <laughs> is whatever color I can see in your glass. That's yeah, <laughs> copper. Yeah, it's a good copper color. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing. <sighs> Gosh, I oh, will get a you. Pleasure. Some. <laughs> You know, for the dear listeners, that's the first time they're hearing you say that to me. <laughs> for me, that's not the first time I've heard that promise. Oh, shit, have I, have I promised you before and I've, have, have and, I let you and down? And not just once or twice. We're up mm. to, I think this might be the fourth time you've promised to send me a bottle. So shit. here we are. We're just, you know, I'll just text Sam. Hey, Sam, Joshua's failing. Could you help me out? <laughs> I'll get demoted. I just got a promotion. Don't do, don't get me demoted. <laughs> okay, let's toast our black tots and get the all right. Get the black tot out of here. Thanks so much again uh, to the good Mitch Wilson, to you, Jason. Always, and to our listeners. Always, and to to anyone else who may sail in her. Oh, you know what? For Mitch, Mitch, this has been a wonderful first episode of One Nation Under Rum. Ha, 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 ha.